Hey everybody, you're listening to Sit Down with Stand-Ups. I'm Ari Azizian, and I'm extremely honored to introduce my guest today. He's one of the all-time greatest stand-up comedians. He was a part of the first black-and-white comedy duo in American history. He's appeared on The Tonight Show 61 times, and he toured and opened for Frank Sinatra for over a decade. I'm sitting here with the great Mr. Tom Dreesen. Well, I don't know about great. <laughs> well, hilarious, fantastic, wonderful. It's, it's okay, you know, Ari, when you introduce a comedian like this, that's great. They love it. But if you're going on stage, you say, don't say all those things. <laughs> I mean, because you know how that is. You say, hey, fasten your seatbelt. This next guy's going <laughs> to knock you dead. Well, you know, that's a kiss of death. Right. Right there, you know. But it's okay here, yeah. Well, it's such an honor to talk to you today. And Thank I, you. I've seen you at the Laugh Factory a couple times, and I think you're hilarious. You know, always, like, get me in stitches, and I think you're one of the best. Oh, absolutely. that's kind of I use the Laugh Factory to break in new material, you know, whenever I come off the road, you know, um, if I'm going to do Letterman or something like that, I use the Laugh Factory to, and uh, that I haven't through the years. I was one of those lucky guys who didn't have to go into the comedy clubs. In fact, when Tim Reed and I started as America's first black and white comedy team, there were no comedy clubs. Right. So, you know, uh, later when I started doing the Tonight Show, when a team split up and I started doing the Johnny Carson Show, and, and I went from there straight to Las Vegas. Wow. So I didn't have to play that comedy club circuit. However, I go to those clubs every chance I get when I'm on the road or somewhere, I'll go and break in new material if I'm in New York or in, and here in L.A., you know, where I live. The Laugh Factory is a great spot to try out new material, you know. It's so, yeah, it's so cool to watch. And uh, just to go back a little bit, I heard you grew up in Chicago, and mm -hmm. you originally, as a boy, you were shining shoes in bars, in local bars. And I believe you said you saw your father making jokes and making people laugh. Well, it, it, what's interesting, he was my my mom um, was a bartender. Yeah, <clears throat> and and uh, so we had eight kids. We lived in a shack. Five of us slept in one bed. Wow. We had no bathtub, no shower, no hot water. You know, it was uh, raggedy poor in a rat infested, roach infested shack. So. As a little boy, and by the way, I regret none of that. You know, I think that's the greatest thing that ever happened to me, you know, uh, because all of life is about perception. It taught me a great work ethic that I needed to survive later in life as a stand-up comedian. So uh, I would, you know, my older brother and I, I'd shine shoes in taverns, set pins in bowling alleys, caddy in the summertime, wow. carry two bags, sell newspapers. But one of the jobs, my, one of my first jobs, was shining shoes. And my mom was a bartender, so I would go... From bar to bar in my neighborhood, there were 36 taverns where I, where I grew up at. Um, eight right in my local neighborhood. You know, there were a lot of steel mills and factories, and all these guys would come out of the factory and have a shot in a beer before they went home. And, you know, so I would real change. Real blue-collar Yeah, real neighborhood. Blue yeah. <clears throat> so I would change shoes in all the taverns. But the last tavern I'd go to was where my mom tended bar for uh, she tend, her brother-in-law owned a tavern. My, I was my uncle. By my mom's marriage, you know, and um, but it was my mom's sister's husband, you know, and so as I'd go there last and wait for the shifts to change, but while I would sit there in a corner, my mom would bring me a little Pepsi Cola or something, and I'd sit there in the corner wait for the shifts to change. He would be behind the bar telling jokes, yeah, and just cracking everybody up, and I was fascinated as a little boy that somebody could. How old were you at that? Eight, eight years old. Eight years old. That this man. With his vocabulary, his vernacular, and his inflection, could cause this sound to come out of everybody's body and fill the air like electricity and unify all these people. All of a sudden, they were all one. It was just fascinating to me. It wasn't so much even the, the content, but the way that he would deliver a punchline, you know, and get all these people laughing, you know. And so I, I, I was 
I emulated him later, you know. I told a lot of those jokes, many that should not be told on a Catholic school playground, you know. <laughs> but but uh, it was it was years later that I found out that he was my biological father. Oh, the wow. the it was an interesting tale. Um, but my mom had an affair with her brother-in-law. Wow. And uh, nobody knew that. And you that. didn't know, yeah. No, I didn't know that. No one knew that. My father didn't know that. My dad didn't know that. No one knew it. And th- through the years, I was attracted to this guy, though. He was... Uh, he was my favorite uncle, and we looked alike. Isn't and, that funny? And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I, I, but I also loved him a lot. I mean, he was just—he was my hero as a little boy growing up because he was a tough guy, tough Italian guy from the South Side of Chicago, you know. And um, years later, I confronted him when I felt this, you know, because I didn't look like any of my brothers and sisters. I had eight brothers and sisters, you know. I, uh, my one buddy described the family picture. He said it looks like a whole group of cocker spaniels in one Airedale. <laughs> Me, but anyhow, so it, it turned out to be, and none of these things I regret, of course, you know, I, I don't regret any of these things. So it turned out to me, it, it was interesting that how years later that became my profession because it was the sound of laughter always was my first love. You know? And that's so interesting that you, you get your, you know, your sense of humor from your family. And was your mom and brothers and sisters very funny as well? And my mom had a great laugh. Yeah. But my brothers and sisters went off on My one sister, yeah, she, she's kind of a, a character. But uh, my mom had a great laugh, and I liked to hear her laugh. I, I would make her laugh. I can remember when I was a little boy, she had pneumonia real bad. Later we found out it was double pneumonia, and they had to take her to the hospital. But where I lived that in the shack, we never went to doctors. You just didn't do that. You home remedies yourself, right. you know. That, that we all survived that childhood is amazing to me because there was no heat in the wintertime. And if a window broke, you stuck a rag in it. And exactly. it no, my father had, was from a family of eight as well. And, you well, know, so, he yeah. said, doctor. He says, doctor, what are oh, you talking yeah. about? It's oh, just yeah. a cold. That's, that's, no, that's the truth. We never went. The first time I had a complete physical was when I went in the service at oh, age 17. Gosh. Yeah. You know. However, so... Uh, her laugh was... Yeah, so my mom was very ill, and I one time dressed up like uh, Bing Crosby, and then Bob Hope, I would come in the room, my sisters would introduce me as Bing Crosby, and then I would come, I had a long coat, and I'd put on one of my dad's old hats, and I'd come in, and I'd sing to her, she would just crack up as sick <laughs> as she was, then I'd come in, and I'd be Bob Hope, and I'd do a joke or something, and they'd introduce me as Bob Hope. So, um, it, 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 hearing her laugh, you know, and she had a great laugh. Uh, I really enjoyed that, you know, and and I think a home that if you're raised in a home that has laughter in it, it encourages you, and a sense of humor. And a sense of humor is not when you have the ability to laugh at other shortcomings or misfortunes. It's when you have the ability to laugh at your own. If you can Absolutely. make fun of you, if you want to teach your children a sense of humor, share every faux pas you've ever done. <laughs> Come home and tell them. You know, I, I remember one time telling my kids my lip was bleeding. They said, "What happened? It happened." I went to open a car door and I hit myself right in the mouth with the car door. <laughs> now your instinct is to go and say somebody threw a rock at me. Or, fight. Don't tell them how dumb you are. Yeah. <laughs> but they loved the fact that I would say that I did something stupid. So you, a good sense of humor is when you have the ability to laugh at yourself and laugh at your own shortcomings. Absolutely, you know? yeah. That honesty, I think, is yeah, that gift, the, the funniest. Uh, so you're eight years old. You're introduced to this you know that you're hearing all this laughter i mean comedy isn't even today is not a practical industry to go into i feel like and there weren't any comedy clubs like you mentioned so was it around then when you discovered that you wanted to be a comedian or go into show business never i would have never dreamed ari that i'd ever be in show business it was the furthest thing from my mind i I went in the service at age 17 got a high school i was a high school dropout i got a high school diploma from the navy and i went to junior college nights and studied political science you know 
Came out of the service after four years, wandered aimlessly. I worked construction. I wheeled concrete pouring sidewalks and basements. I, um, I, I worked uh, on a loading dock. I was a truck driver for a while, and then I worked on a loading dock and became a Teamster union guy, and I was loading trucks. And then the management came to me and, and, and convinced me to drop my union card and become management, and I became a foreman on a loading dock with big, tough Polish, Irish, Italian guys from Chicago, real tough guys. And, and I was now for eight months I was working with them side yep. by side, and then I became their boss. That was really, <laughs> that was a great experience. That's so, so interesting. I think Mr. Sinatra was also wasn't he down in a foreman for like a getting off uh, stuff from like a ship, like cargo. And well, he as a little boy, yeah, he he lived in Hoboken. Right. So they that, that's what that town was made of of those hardworking kind of guys, you know. And his mom and dad actually had a tavern called Marty O'Brien's Bar and Grill. His father boxed under the name of Marty O'Brien because Italians, there was so much prejudice against Italians. People don't realize that in America. There were more Italian lynchings than any other ethnicity. They, oh my gosh, they lynched yeah. 11 Italians in one community. They burned out villages and uh, and uh, where Italians lived. There was really a lot of prejudice no against Italians. Yeah, No one knows that because it was never passed on down to us. You know, they, they assimilated and moved on. You know, more Italian-Americans fought in World War II than any other ethnicity. The first Medal of Honor winner was a guy named Bastiglione from New Jersey. Wow. I'm only saying all this because uh, that, that was the kind of stuff that, you know, that Frank's father would talk about, that he, he had to box under an Irish name because Italians, it was so much prejudice. That's so yeah. he had picked up a little bit of popularity in Hoboken as a fighter, and so when he retired from fighting... They, his name was Marty O'Brien. They opened up a bar called Marty O'Brien's Bar and Grill, and so it, he had a local, like a, a local celebrity, you know. And there was an old Nickelodeon in there, and Frank used to sing. The sailors would put a nickel in the in, the, in this uh, piano and have him sing a role. And Frank would sing. They'd give him a nickel to sing. You know? Oh wow! <clears throat> so he used to tell me those stories, you know. But but you're a foreman on a construction yeah, but foreman on loading. I'm sorry about that. I'm, I'm glad you stay with me because yeah. I go all over the place. <laughs> But so I wandered aimlessly. I tended bar. I, you know, I did all these things, and, and, and I was so unhappy with where I was in life. I, I mean, I was married at the time. I had three kids, and I kept thinking I, I'd sit in bars late at night with my buddies you know, on weekends, and I kept thinking I don't belong here, but I didn't know where I belonged. You know, I used to pray. I would say, God, this can't be what you want me to do. I just felt so unfulfilled. I joined a civic group called the JCs, in those days called the Junior Chamber of Commerce. They trained young men in leadership and how to sit on a committee, how to serve on a committee, how to chair that committee, you know, and how to become leaders in the community. That whatever problems were facing the community, we went out and attacked those problems, formed groups, and 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 uh, and, um, and and chaired, served on those committees, and and made the community a better place to live. That's what JCs were about. By making the community a better place to live, we made the state a better place to live, and then the nation a better place to live. That was their goal, and they were nationwide. So I joined that group, and in it, they were attacking community problems. And one of the problems, in the, we had serious race relation problems back in that day, uh, and we would do community attitude surveys, and you know, it was, it was a real difficult time in America. Um, and, this is like and, mid-60s? Yeah, yeah. mid-60s and, and, and the late 60s. And... So uh, one of the problems was, as it is today, was our youth destroying their minds and bodies with drugs. And they were starting at such an early age, I decided I was going to write a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. So I, I f put this whole program together, and I got a guy named John DeBoer to help me. He said, I'll help you, Tom. 
you know, white guy in, in my neighbor in, in the JCs. And the night I proposed this project as a JC project, a new member joined, a black guy named Tim Reed. Oh, he, wow. he graduated from Norfolk State College, yeah. and E.I. DuPont recruited him into Chicago as a marketing rep. And he said to me, uh, after I proposed the project, he said, I'd like to work with you on that. I'm a new guy. I said, gee, thanks, but I got a guy. But to show you how fate is, Ari, you know, that all those prayers I was saying, God, what am I supposed to be doing in life? You guys uh, passed cross at that moment. Yeah, and, and so the next day, John DeBoer calls me and said, I got a job, a new job, Tom. I can't do that project with you. I said, oh, yeah, what was that guy's name, that, that, that black guy? Oh, Tim Reed. You know, now I called him, and now we go into the schools. He worked with me on the project. We got it all together. We go into the schools, and the moment I walked in that classroom, I realized, wow, my, how, the, our schools were all integrated. So they see a young black guy and a young white guy, you know, walk in the room. We got their attention immediately, you know. <clears throat> and, and so we played music and got the kids laughing, and we played off of one another. And once we got them settled down, we started planting the seeds of the ills of drug abuse. And one day, a little eighth grade girl, the program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries. They used our JC, uh, our, our approach to drug education at an elementary school level. Mind you, in those days, they weren't teaching drug education at a college or a high school level, wow. let alone at an elementary school right. level. So we, we, uh, one day, a little eighth grade girl said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. <laughs> and the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us. No one had ever done that before. So we, we went out and we started doing what we, you know, we, we, we wrote material. We worked all black clubs in the north and the south and all white clubs. Uh, black clubs, what they affectionately call the Chitlin Circuit, black-owned, black-operated <coughs> nightclubs. And, uh, and we struggled for six years. A guy put a lit cigarette out in Tim's face the fourth time we were on stage. Wow. A guy hit me in the face with an ice ball at University of Illinois. Uh, another guy attacked me one night. And, I mean, it was... It was a funny thing about racism. If there was a black guy who hated white people, hated them with a passion, he wasn't mad at me. He was mad at Tim for being with me. See, Tim would be an Uncle Tom. If there was a white guy, a redneck, who hated black people with a passion, he wasn't mad at Tim. He's mad at me. I'm the N-word lover, and he didn't mind calling me that two or three of them catching me in the men's room. My gosh. And yeah. I boxed when I was in the service so I could handle myself, but sometimes <laughs> there was one time a guy outweighed me by 150 pounds and pummeled me. You know, But most people liked what we did. And we stuck it out for six years. The team split up. And as you know, Tim went on to become Venus Flytrap on WKRP Cincinnati right, yeah. on a show called Sister, Sister. He's a director. He had, yeah, he's a director. And we wrote a book, uh, Tim and Tom, on American Comedy in Black and White. It's such a great book. I really love this book. It's so inspiring, and it's so truthful and honest, too. You know, Painfully you read, honest. Yeah, I know. You read, like, these comedy memoirs, and they're all great, but they say, well, I was— you know, in high school, and then I listened to my first comedy album, and then I was on The Tonight Show. It's like, yeah. you just skipped everything. Yeah. But this one, it goes in so much great detail. Our childhoods. and Your and childhoods, the... and, uh, you know, you mentioned the Chitlin Circuit, and I'm such a lover of music, and you read about those, like James Brown, Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye, all those guys, yeah. and you guys toured with them. You were oh, with yeah. Gladys Knight and the Pips, Smokey, yeah. Temptations. Smokey's one of my dearest friends to this day, yeah. That's amazing. You guys were like rock stars, you and Tim. Like, well, I don't know that we not at all. I, we, you know, we we were really just struggling, and we were on the we were on the verge of something, and and I dreamed that Tim Reed and I would become the greatest comedy team in America, whatever. But I really felt we could be, but as you read the book, there's always there's somebody that there's a game that people play. Not everybody. But it's called divide and conquer. If they see you and I getting along real good, most people say, hey, you know, Tom and I are good friends. You mm -hmm. know, But somebody will be jealous of that friendship and say, you know, Harry, I don't know if you know about Tom, but, you know, Tom says this when you're not around. Or oh, something. Yeah. It, just some, some people have that gene in their brain right. to, to divide it. Yeah, to, to, they see something working and they want to, they want yeah. to divide it. So 
consequently, that happened with Tim and I. That that uh, and it's in the book. But you know, now the book is going to become a movie. Oh and, yeah, and I heard about that. Yeah, so we're, we're, it, it, is Tim directing it? No, <clears throat> or we, we, I, I don't think so. What they have in mind, a company called Lone Trees Production is going to be producing it. So I'm not sure who's going to direct yeah. it. To be honest with you. Well, I'm really excited to see that. On it's going to be fun to do. Yeah. I, I mean, Tim and I are going to be consultants. We can't play ourselves. That was <laughs> 45 years ago. You know. Right. Um, I, I wanted to ask you. Mentioned a little bit about it, but in those early days, going out in front of. I imagine were they theaters because comedy clubs weren't really, you know, like two hundred. You guys were playing large audiences. What was it like? No, we to... were playing. We were playing uh, not always larger. We played Chitlin Circuit. We had twelve people in the audience. Oh, okay. The Chitlin Circuit were black-owned, black-operated clubs like the Sugar Shack in Boston, the Twenty Grand in Detroit, the High Chaparral uh, in Chicago, the Burning Spear Dating Club Lounge, uh, the Club Harlem in Atlantic City. Oh, right. Yeah. The the Twenty Grand in Detroit. All the Motown acts. Motown was at that time in Detroit. Barry Gordy's company. So the Motown acts broke in their act before they went to Vegas. They broke them in at the 20 grand. And and that's where we got to work with all these great artists, you know. Yeah, the, those stories are amazing to read in the book. But, but. We, we, you know, but I've worked, you know, with Sinatra. I worked 20,000 seaters. One yeah. time in Hawaii, 40,000 people oh outdoors. Gosh. That's <clears> incredible. <throat> no, but I was wondering what were, you know, this is like the height of the civil rights movement. It's the late 60s, early 70s, and what is the audience's perception when they see a white and black man come out and do comedy? We got their attention immediately. Immediately, you know? yeah. And we, we'd walk out on stage, and you know, sometimes you'd hear people, blah, 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 and I'd say, and all of a sudden you hear, Whew, hush. <laughs> Just quiet. And they say, what is this all about? You know. And then Tim and I would play off of that. Mm-hmm. We'd, we'd have such fun playing off of that. Uh, we had so many great, great routines that one of them uh, was where he taught me how to be a black guy, you know, you know. Uh, and if we worked in all black audience, he'd. It's the know, bus stop. Routine? Yeah, that was one of those yeah, routines. I love yeah, that one. and then then uh, um, we also did a routine on the dating game, where uh, I, I play. Uh, you know, we do it. I'm. I'm. Uh, welcome to the dating game, and we'd make it apply to whatever area we were in, and we'd find out we'd get local knowledge about certain neighborhoods and and characters. And, and we would implement all that into the bit. And we worked prisons. We did 11 prisons in one year. Wow. And so we would bring the dating game to Joliet Prison or Pontiac Prison. <laughs> and, and I would get the warden's name. And, and uh, or bachelor number one was, was it like a white guy. Uh, Tim would play all three bachelors, and I'd play the girl. I'd put a wig on. And, <laughs> and uh, first I'd be the announcer, and then you know we, we'd switch back and forth. But uh, Tim, bachelor number one would be like this white hillbilly yokel, you mm. know, redneck. Bachelor number two was a tough-ass brother from the <laughs> south side of Chicago. And bachelor number three was a gay guy that worked in the laundry. <laughs> so we, we, you know, we, we would we would do these different. And bachelor number three was not interested at all in the in the in the girl. He was interested in bachelor number two, and so there was this conflict was always going on. And we we, we had just had so much fun with that bit, you know. Yeah, it's so so funny. And um, and then from then on, did you move to Los Angeles in the seventy like mid seventies to pursue stand up? Yeah, when the team broke up. By yourself, right? Yeah, I, I, the team broke up. It devastated me. I never wanted that team to break up. <clears throat> As I said earlier, I thought Tim and Tom, my dream was that they would be the greatest comedy team America had ever known. I exactly. Just, I wanted that as a goal. I wanted. How do you how do you overcome something like that where you're so used to working with a partner and now you have to go on stage by yourself? That was the that was the problem I was having. I had never been on stage by myself, just with Tim from day one, or nor Tim by himself, just with me, <clears throat> and. I, I, when the team broke up and I realized it was over, I was sitting in a bar with my buddies back in the neighborhood. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was sitting at the bar thinking, what am I going to do? I could either get another black guy and 
do the same act. Or I could uh, go it alone. Or I could quit the whole dream and, and please my ex-wife. She never wanted me in show business. I could get a job working in a factory or something like that. She just uh, didn't like show business and didn't, she wanted, and I don't blame her. Her dad worked in a factory 35 years and never missed a day at work. Well, it's amazing many comedians start out, you know, by themselves living on their own, but you had already had a family. Yeah. And you you just had begun doing stand-up. The day I went on stage, I had a wife and three kids. So, you know, I got married very young when I was in the service. But anyhow, the the point of that is is that, that I was sitting in this bar and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I just sat there at the bar and I said, I'm going to go it alone. I'm going to, I'm going to try to get on The Tonight Show. I, I, I said, in, you know, I've read literally hundreds of books on the powers of the mind. I give motivation speeches even to this day on four subjects, on perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. And, uh, but anyhow, sitting at the bar, it, I said to myself, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go it alone. I made up my mind, I'm going to try to get on The Tonight Show. And then I remembered something that I read in a book by W. Clement Stone called Positive Mental Attitude. It said, if you know what you want in life, you know, search your life. If it's a noble endeavor, search your life and see if there's anything in your life that can deter you from that noble achievement and then get it out of your life, man, woman, or beast. And I thought, what could stop me if I wanted to make it as a stand-up comedian? And it was the beer in front of me. I said, I love drinking. I love hanging out with the guys and yeah. drinking 10, 15, 20 beers on a Friday night or a Saturday night. I said, that probably could stop me. And I pushed the beers across the bar, and I told my friend I quit. And my wow. friend was standing bar. He said, his name was Jimmy Lapore. He said, you're two for the night, Tom. I said, no, I quit. He said, you quit. I said, he said, for the night you quit. I said, I quit. He went, yeah, right. <laughs> and I never touched another drop till after I was doing the Tonight Shows and successful. But now, even now, I, don't, I haven't had a drink in the, I don't, it, it doesn't interest me anymore. I wasn't on the program. I didn't do anything like that, go to AA. Mm-hmm. But it's how dedicated you have to be. If you want to be a stand-up comedian, you really want to be a stand-up comedian, I don't mean, well, I'd like to be one. And, you know, if things go my way, I would be one. No, I'm talking about a burning desire that that doesn't leave your conscious mind ever you want to be a stand-up comedian you want to make a living as a stand-up comedian then you have to have bulldog tenacity and you have to approach it like if you're running a marathon because it isn't a it isn't a, a, a 5k it's a lifetime you know right <clears throat> and that's what I, I knew i had to dedicate myself to it you know that's incredible yeah I, <clears throat> i've heard you know like jay leno and stuff say there's three things that can ruin a comedian it's uh, women alcohol and drugs and he says, "You gotta." No question. You got. <laughs> it's but his is uh, cars. I think he has. And, well, keeps yeah, but he didn't have cars, so he made a whole lot of money. <laughs> right. You know, exactly. You know. Well, I mean, so you come out to L.A. Let How me let me stop just for a second. Sorry, that's that question. There's two great days in a human being's life, Ari: the day you're born and the day you find out why. Those are the two greatest days of your life. That's so true. And yeah. when I knew the first time I went on stage with Tim, and something got a laugh that I had written. That that was like I couldn't I can't describe that even to this day. It was like one of those old B movies where the dark clouds open up and the sun bursts through. And I was on stage and I was saying to myself, "Yes, oh yes, this is what I want to do." I knew that moment. This is what I was put on this planet to do. I didn't didn't think about becoming a star or or or, or, or you know um, having three hundred cars like Jay or <laughs> I mean, All I thought of, that if you the thought that you could make a living making people laugh overwhelmed me. I to this day, I mean, I don't, there wasn't a day go by that I doesn't think I don't thank God that I make a living. 
making people laugh. Yeah. Because I wheel concrete. I clean sewers. I loaded trucks. I, I mean, I know what hard work is all about. This is the greatest profession on the planet. You absolutely. Know, end of the story. You, you should No, absolutely. Because, you know, if you're loading trucks and doing all that, at the end of the week, you want to go see somebody make you laugh. So now yeah. you're that guy. That's amazing. That's and we make a living amazing. at doing it. It's, just, it's the greatest profession on the planet. When I give motivation speeches to comedians, I, have a, I, I give motivation speeches, as I said earlier, to everybody. But I have a specific program I do for comedians. It's called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and How to Get There. And, and I teach them how I, I, in, my, in my presentation what a great profession we're, we have. And not to tarnish it, I've known five great stand-up comedians who committed suicide. I mean, they were great stand-up comedians. I'm not talking about they, were, they, they couldn't make it or something. They were very good at what they did. But what I, teach, what I try to teach my fellow comedians is to enjoy this journey that we're on. We were in the greatest profession in the world. And so one night you're making, you're making 20,000 people laugh and you're making millions. And maybe years later you're making 20 people laugh and you're making a few bucks. It doesn't matter. It, it, you didn't step down. It's just that time moves on, but you're still, you still have the skills to make people laugh. True, yeah. yeah. So, and you, now your question was, you said, and then you moved out to L.A. and? Well, you moved out here in the <clears throat> mid-'70s, and you're working with great comedians like David Letterman, Jay Leno, Robin Williams. And, I mean, you've been around so many great comedians. And I was just wondering, have you discovered anything that all comedians sort of share that they have in common maybe well you know you know that's a good point I, I would go on stage every night at the comedy store with all these unknown comedians uh david letterman jay leno gallagher robin williams michael keaton um who else? they're all unknowns you know elaine boozler wow, um yeah. the the girl waiting tables was deborah winger you know um it, but the, the the one thing that i in my opinion <clears throat> and this will sound negative but but it's an observation the 45 years I've been in show business, my opinion, 85% of all stand-up comedians are insecure, neurotic, sometimes psychotic, loved, starved, wrecks, absolute wrecks. And the other 15% are gifted, confident people who say, I know how to write a joke and I know how to tell one. You know? But that insecurity also makes them funny. It's also what makes them funny is, is their, their, their cynical look on the world, and, and uh, you know, if, if you're a cynic, you know, somebody once said to me, I'd like to write for you, what do you want me to write about? I said, what pisses you off? <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what you write about. Right. You know, and uh, anyhow, so that's the one thing. I, but I'll tell you something interesting that you brought this up, and I hadn't thought about this in a long time. Years ago, a magazine asked me to do a story about what all stand-up comedians might have in common. One thing, and I, and I, I came across this thing. I just, for the heck of it, I said to every stand-up comedian I met, and I asked all kinds of them, big names and little guys, did your father love you? Did your father say, I love you? Did he put his arms around you and hug you and say, you know, I love you? And I couldn't find one. Wow. I couldn't find one. Now, yeah. I had a couple guys say, oh, my dad loved me. I said, you know, a lot of them said I didn't have a dad. I didn't know who my dad was. A lot of them said, no, my dad wasn't that kind of guy. He was... In, but one guy said, actually a couple of them said, my dad loved me. I said, did he tell you that? Well, no, he didn't have to tell me, but I knew he loved me. I said, no, did he ever put his arms around you and say, I love you, and I'm proud of you, son? And he said, 
Oh, no, no. So my, my th- thought is that maybe that might, but of course you might interview a thousand bartenders and they'll tell you the same thing. I don't know. Right, yeah. You know, truck drivers. But I, I f- think that maybe sometimes that that's a love, that that laughter becomes love of a sort. And it's addicting. It's an approval. You yeah, it's approval, yeah, right. and, 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 and that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether that's, any stand-up comedian listening to this will probably call and say, my dad hugged me every day of my life. You know, but but no, for I the most part, I've yeah. found that, that, that I, I don't know whether that is, but I just thought I'd try to find something that we all had in common, you know. No, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, no, I still try so hard to make my dad laugh like every day. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. a huge challenge for me. But uh, um, So you're at the comedy store, and how long was it before you got your first appearance on Tonight Show? About a year after the team broke up. You know, I went That's to the comedy show every night. Yeah, I read it, but I, I hounded the Tonight Show. I, I, I wrote funny letters to Craig Tennis, the talent <laughs> coordinator. and uh, Anyhow, but yeah, I got that first break. And that's, by the way, the reason you came here in those days, in 1972, Johnny Carson was in New York. He left New York and came to L.A. Right. Consequently, all the comedians migrated out here. When I came out here in 75, it was with David Letterman, Jay Leno, you know, Robin Williams. Everybody was coming this way because that's where Johnny Carson was. Right. And for the reason being, there were other shows, you know, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Dinah Shore. One appearance on The Tonight Show, your whole life changed. Freddie Prince did one appearance on The Tonight Show. The very next show. day, he got a sitcom. Yeah. Next day. I did one appearance on The Tonight Show. The next day, CBS signed me to a development deal. Wow. I was broke drawing unemployment. The next day, I got a development deal from CBS where the guy handed me a check for $10,000. And those days, that was $10 million, you know, to yeah. me. And my rent was $225 a month with a wife and three kids, so you can imagine. And I got $1,850 a month for one year while they held me to this development deal. So all of a sudden... All my bills are paid. The rent was paid. The groceries are paid. My, and I could now focus on stand-up, you know. Yeah. So that's how powerful that show was. And that's why we came here to, do, to get on the Johnny Carson show. It was, it's the Tonight Show, but we called it the Johnny Carson, Johnny Carson show. Carson yeah. show, yeah. No, it's such an amazing story. <laughs> I read in your book, and you mentioned you came up to the comedy store. And it was like a Tuesday night, and you saw a line wrapped around the comedy store. It was like 400 people on the street. And he said, what's the big deal? He said, well, there's this new guy everybody's here to see. All the talent coordinators are here. His name is Billy Crystal. Yeah. And you're like, okay, well, whatever. And then you go on stage, and there's only 20 people in the audience. Yeah. But you still gave it your all, which I love. And well, the reason for that was the audience. Well, the reason for that was Rollins and Jaffe were his management. Rollins and Jaffe, big management firm. And they were, the Tonight Show was looking at three comedians that night, Baum and Eston, a comedy team. Baum later became Bruce Baum, Bruce Baby oh. Baum. And, but, uh, and Larry Eston later wrote for Cheers and shows like that. But they were looking at Baum and Eston, they were looking at me, and they are looking at this new guy, Billy Crystal. And when I pull up in front of the comedy store, I'm, I'm worried because it's a Tuesday night. You're thinking, well, there'll probably be 15, 20 people in the audience. And, you know, you know, we comedians, we like a big crowd. Right. We've got a better chance of scoring. And I see this huge crowd, and I went, oh, my God, that's great. And then I look, and it's Carl Reiner. And I look, and it's, oh, my God, it's, it's uh, um, uh, Bud Yorkin. And it's wow. all these powerful guys who did, you know, Norman Lear. And I'm going, oh, my God, they're all going to see me tonight. And I realized Rollins and Jaffe corralled them to see their client, Billy Crystal. And they kept them outside till, till I was done. And I don't blame them. That's a good management move. They didn't bring all those people in there to see me. You know, so they, the, the, uh, I, when I went on, there was like 18, 20 people in the audience. And I, uh, luckily, I had a good set. Craig Tennis said, 
I, afterward, he said, I enjoyed your material. I want you to come to my office Monday, and we'll talk. I went there Monday, and he said, okay, and his, behind his desk. He said, I saw you do 20 minutes. What five would you do if I gave you the Tonight Show? I said, well, I'd do this bit, this bit, bit. And he said, no, nah, take that one out. Now do it again. And he said, uh, that's good. No, take that one out. And finally, <laughs> he said, that's a good set. He said, you're on next Tuesday. Oh, my God. I that's couldn't, amazing. Yeah. I couldn't sleep for a week, you know, and called everybody in the world, and then I got bumped. I got there, and I got... Got in makeup and got in my dressing room, and they said we ran out of time. And then I went the next week and got in makeup, and we ran out of time. It happened three times in a row to me. And on the fourth time I go to the Tonight Show, I'm in makeup, and it's my fourth time there, and I'm in the makeup room, and Fred DeCordova, the producer, came in, and he said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> oh, the pressure. You get a lump in your throat the size of a grapefruit. They come to get you after. Bert Convy was on the show with... Um, uh, Carol Burnett, and she had, she's had everybody laughing, and then he was uh, going to sing a song, and after his song, I was going on. Bert Convy sang a song, Now They Come to Get You, and you take that long walk backstage of The Tonight Show, and all the stagehands in those days, today, you know, you and you're a veteran, hey, Dreesen, how's your Cubs? Hey, Tommy, I mean, you're laughing at everybody, <laughs> right. you know. That first time, uh, though. That first time, they all turn their backs on you, they go, it's his first time, it's his first time, oh, they whisper, you know. <laughs> Now you get behind a curtain and Doc Severinsen's band is playing because they're in commercial break. Right. The coordinator said, you all right? Yeah. And you said, yeah, I'm fine. Uh -uh. I said, okay. <laughs> now there's 15 million people watch that show. Not only that, all the agents and coordinators and your mother's got everybody back in the old neighborhood. If you bomb, you can't even go back home. And <laughs> so you're behind that curtain and he leaves you alone. And now you're all alone. You're pacing. There's one black guy there. I think his name was Levi or Eli. He worked with him for years. You know, his job was just to open a curtain when it's time for you to go out. And you're walking back and forth. Now the music stops and your heart stops. You go, oh boy, oh boy. And you hear Johnny talking. We're back now. And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. That key line, I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight. He's setting them up for you. Yeah. Thank God for him. He won't ever do it. He would only do it the first time. He doesn't do it the second and third time. So, and they open up that curtain and you walk out. Oh my, so welcome Tom Dreesen. And you walk out and, and the bright lights, you can't even see the audience, they're in shadows. And there's a, a mark on the floor, a green tape on the floor, that's your mark. I hit that mark and, oh boy, and, and I got that first joke out and I've got to laugh. And I get the second joke out and it's got to laugh. Oh boy, and I get the third joke, now I'm on a roll, it's got to laugh. And the fourth joke, I hear Johnny laughing real loud and Ed McMahon, oh, wow. oh, it's like laughter from heaven. <laughs> now you're on a roll, I got an applause and an applause. I end up getting 11 applause. And, uh, and now I was done. I did my bit. And I said, you've been a wonderful audience. This is my first appearance on The Tonight Show. And show business is a tough life. I said, so if you like me, just if you like me, and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me, will you? <laughs> <laughs> and I walked out. I go through the curtain, and they come running up. Craig Tennis running on the court. He said, go back. He said, go back. Johnny wants you back. I said, go back and sit by Johnny. He said, no, don't sit by Johnny. Just walk back. <laughs> and I walk out, you know, and now the people are still cheering, and right. Johnny gives you that little circle with his finger. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and I can't even tell you, Ari, I can't tell you what years of sleeping in a car and struggling and hitchhiking up down Sunset Boulevard, um, not being able to put groceries on the table, food on the table for my family, rent way behind due. The, the, not having a car, a grown man with three kids and couldn't even have a car for a while in my life, you know, uh, catching buses and trains, and now the whole world changed. I mean, the next day, uh, all hell broke loose in my life, you know. 
this guy Lee Curlin from CBS saw me. I told you, signed me the development deal. But every, Merv Griffin, Dinosaur, Mike Douglas, Hollywood Squares, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train. I'm the only white comedian ever to do Soul Train. Yeah, wow. I'm, you know, American Bandstand. Um, Midnight 20, Special, all those. Yeah, Midnight Special, $20,000 Pyramid. Um, uh, you know, match game, all these shows. Right. My whole life changed. Sammy Davis Jr. takes me on the road for three years in the Las Vegas. I'd never worked Vegas. I mean, that one appearance changed my life. That's incredible. I've never stopped working since. I mean, I went on to do, as you said, 61 appearances. 61, yeah. I did 50 on Letterman at least. I, and Letterman let me host when he had the shingles, you know. So every time I see Dave, I'd say, you don't look so good. You need to take some time <laughs> off, you know? No, that's amazing. And, you know, 61 times 50 with Johnny and 11 with Jay Leno. Yeah. The thing that blows me away is you have to have a new five minutes every time you go on. You do it 60 times. That's like six hours of material. Oh, How did, are you going on like at least two times, three times a year? I was doing I did one. One time I did eight. Uh, oh, my God. Eight, time in, eight times in one year. How do you prepare time. for that? Well, <clears throat> I mean, you, my, my ex-wife would tell you that all of a sudden everything became material. The second I walked through that curtain, when the show was over, my mind was already on the next Tonight Show. Everything became material. I had a paper and a pencil in my pocket all the time, a notepad, on airplanes. And you'd say something, and I'd say, oh, that's funny, Ari. And, and I'd think about it. Now, you know how to make that really funny? I'd, I could, you know, I'd, see, I'd observe something and, and put it into material. Everything becomes material, you know. Um, you know, when I went through a divorce, that became a great 10 minutes, you know. <laughs> you know, any tragedy... You gotta look at it with that, you know. Well, show them your pain. Like the side. audience wants to see your pain. Right. Show them your pain. Laugh at your pain. You know, poke fun at yourself, and uh, you know, so they know you're one of them. But yeah, it, it became, it was very difficult to uh, keep coming up with new material. But that's what you had to do, if you were going to keep doing the Tonight Show. Would you just know the next date and just say, "All right, I got thirty days or a month and a half." Well, you know what, I, I, I started, at one time I had carte blanche on that show. I mean, I could actually call a coordinator and say, I'm going to come on March 18th. Did you got it, Tom? Once they knew that I would always deliver. Now, I'm, I'll tell you what I should do. To me, necessity is the mother of invention. I wouldn't have the first joke. And I'd call them and say, I'll be ready in three weeks. They'd say, okay. And then I'd be getting crazed. I'd go to the comedy store, the improvisation. I'd go to every comedy club. I'd go out to Hermosa Beach, the Comedy Magic Club. I, I was a doorman uh, there. Uh, were you really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Mike I Lacey. I think I saw your name on the wall there. Yeah, my, Mr. Lacey. Yeah. Nice fella. Nice He's fella, my hero, Lacey. yeah. And one of the nicest guys in the business. And I'd go to the Ice House. I'd, I would, now I'm obsessed. I got three weeks <laughs> and I got to come up with this new five minutes, you know. And, in, and uh, invariably, the night before, I'd have a tight... And say I was doing it March 18th. Yeah. March 17th, I'd go in the improvisation. It might be a Tuesday night or something. I'd walk up and bomb with that five minutes. Oh. It, would, it wouldn't work for some reason. Now it's always the night. It became almost great. <laughs> it didn't work here. You know, if it doesn't work the night before, it's going to kill. It, it, it began to be like an omen for me. Yeah. You know? but, uh, I, but I would have a tight bit. You know? and, 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 it just, it just was, uh, and that's what you had to do in those days to survive. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. That's <clears throat> very inspiring. Uh, and then you said Sammy Davis got you and you went to Las Vegas. That was the first time you performed in Las Vegas? Yeah, and Sammy took me there. He, uh, I, I, I did his TV show, Sammy and Company. He had a talk show, you know, that he, he filmed out of Lake Tahoe. He was so talented. Oh, oh my God. The most enormous. Uh, there's never been anybody Nobody, like him. Yeah. No. He really is uh, and, and maligned 
It, it breaks my heart whenever I see black comedians making fun of Sammy Davis or mimicking him, making fun. He was the Jackie Robinson of, of show business. He knocked down doors and barriers so that they one day could perform in those places. Sammy was really just the, uh, the best. Absolutely. I mean, you know in every I mean? industry, too. Dancing, yeah. singing, oh. telling jokes. Everything. There's nothing he couldn't do. Oh, nothing. Yeah. You know, but Anyhow, so yeah, Sammy took me on a road, and, and, and I was working in Chicago with him one time at the Maroon Theater. He said, have you ever worked in Las Vegas? And I said, no. Um, it was in my dressing room, and I said, no, I always wanted to. He said, well, you open there January 17th for me. And, and uh, I went to Caesars Palace and just oh, to drive down that strip. And you, in those days, you go down the strip, and every hotel had a singer, comic, comic, singer. Yeah. Every hotel. And to see your name on the marquee with Sammy Davis Jr., oh, boy, oh. that was it was it was so moving you know and uh, and so exciting that's incredible yeah and i always admire comedians that perform in las vegas cuz you go down in the improv any night and everybody's around the same age a demographic everybody's from around the neighborhood and stuff yeah. like that but you go to vegas there's a guy from san francisco alabama japan england how do you make all those different people laugh Hey, by the way, that's that's a real good point, Ari. I don't know how many times people say, you know, he's a Vegas comic, as if that was a low term. It's you know, a negative a Ve- connotation? Like it was a negative connotation. He's a Vegas comic. I feel like that's yeah. the highest thing uh, you could do. And when I work Kansas City or if I work, uh, 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 you know, um, Dover, Delaware, I will research that neighborhood and research that community, and I'll come up with material just for that community. You know, right. what I mean? I'll, I'll figure out in my act what we, you know. But when you go to Vegas, like you say, they're from South America, they're from Japan, they're from Brooklyn, they're from uh, Sacramento, and you better, you know, you better have some pretty, you know, general material that's going to work on them. And 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 uh, this might be a silly question, but have you discovered any topics that are? pretty much universal that everybody can relate to? Well, first of all, just on and you know, anything to do with your, you know, everybody's had a mom and a dad and a, and a, and a daughter and a son or a, or a, and everybody's had to pay taxes. Yeah. And, and in Vegas, everybody usually flew in there. You know, right. you know, as opposed to Atlantic City, everybody drove there. Right, right. You know, when I worked at Atlantic City. So if you were going to do airline jokes, they'd work better in Vegas than they would work, you know. I mean, you don't do a whole act on them, but a few of them. So the, but the, but usually, the other thing is, is when you're writing comedy, there's two rules when you're writing a joke, two very simple rules. Number one, comedy is nine-tenths surprise. The audience laughs because they didn't think you were going to say that or do that. So the setup line has to hide the punchline. And the other rule is there are no victimless jokes. Who's the victim in this joke? The government, the airlines, the society, yourself. You know, your daughter, your daughter's boyfriend. Right. Somebody's know, always wrong. Somebody's wrong in yeah. his joke. Somebody's got to be wrong, you know. I mean, you know, and it could be you, you know. Exactly. Yeah. That's and, so cool. And what was that first experience, the first few experiences like performing in Vegas? Was first it difficult? Of all, in, it was very difficult in Vegas, and I'll tell you why, in those days. But Sammy Davis Jr. saved my soul. Caesar's Palace served food in those days, so the comic was thrown to the lions. Caesar's Palace is not a great comedy room. It's got a high ceiling. I love the Desert Inn. I love the Sands. I love the Riviera Hotel. I love the, uh, even, even the MGM Grand had a high ceiling <clears throat> in those days in the Ballet Grand, you know, but, um, so you like more intimate type rooms, right. you know, but Caesars was a tough room and they served dinner. So the comic was thrown out there. They were hauling food back oh, and forth, waiters eating. and waitresses yeah. eating, and they had to have that food out of there before the headliner came on. So there was a mad dash bringing out checks and bringing chairs and, I mean, if you, you hear clangity, bangity, bangity. But Sammy knew that, and he told me, he said, at rehearsal the first day at Caesars, he said in front of the, um, uh, the conductor there was, or the uh, entertainment director was a guy named Nat Brandywine. <clears throat> and he was standing there with us. Sammy said, Tommy, 
He said, uh, or Nat Brandy went and said to me, he said, Tom, you'll do 20 minutes. Sammy does an hour and 10. We do 90-minute shows here because we want those people back in the casino. And Sammy said, no, no, Matt, Nat. He said, I'm going to come out first. I'll sing three songs. He said, then, Tommy, you do 20, 25, whatever you feel comfortable, and I'll come up and I'll make up the time. And wow. Nat says, well, it's your show, Sammy, whatever you want. He said, Nat, it's Tommy's first time here. He's got a score. He said, Tommy, if you score your first time and the critics like you, they'll bring you back. They'll bring you back for years to come. So you want to score that first time here. And Sammy knew. So Sammy would walk out while there, people are eating, and he'd start to sing. And, oh, my God, the waiters were taking food away from people who hadn't even started <laughs> eating yet. Because And by the time he finished his third song, that room was set up so great. I mean, they were just sitting on the edge of their seats. And he would say to them every night, he'd say, ladies and gentlemen, you've stuck with me through the good times and the bad. He said, and I think of my audience sometimes as friends. And he said, and when, you, when you've got good friends and you want to do something for them, like maybe get them a gift. He said, I got a gift for you. I saw this kid. I think you're going to like him. Wow. Wow. I mean, it, that setup, yeah. yeah. It, it almost was too much, Ari. I mean, there was times I was in the wings going, well, don't, you know, like they say, <laughs> don't overdo it. But I would walk out there and, uh, and I'd say to the audience, all my life I dreamed that one day I'd work Las Vegas all my comedy life, and I, I dreamed it would be Caesar's Palace, but I never dreamed that Sammy Davis Jr. would be my opening act. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd laugh. He'd get a big yeah. kick out of it, you know. What a classy guy. That's <clears throat> oh, he was the best. Amazing. The best. And then, so from there, I heard you say, I think you were opening for Smokey one time in Vegas, and then Frank, did he come to see you, or did you perform for him? No, I was, I, 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 after I toured with Sammy for three years, and I would toured with Tony Orlando and Don, I toured with my buddy Frankie Avalon, I toured with... Um, Different artists all the time. Gladys Knight and the Pips. But I, I toured with um, uh, Mac Davis and who else? I, just different people. But, but I toured with, um, with uh, uh, Smokey Robinson, who we were dear friends, and I, I just love him to death. Uh, real quick side note. Every year I would go back to Chicago at one time, and I'd run 26 miles for multiple sclerosis. My sister Darlene had MS. So I called it 26 miles for Darlene, and I would honor her that day, and I'd run 26 miles, and people would pledge money for every mile I ran. And the proceeds would go to research for MS. Well, I would bring in all my celebrity friends to run part of the way with me, a block or two blocks or a mile, whatever right. you could run. Smokey's the only one who ran all 26 miles wow. with me. And I, 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 when I once said to him at an award show, I said, my mom always told me that a true friend is somebody, if you ask them to go a mile, they go two miles. I said, what kind of friend do you have when you ask him to go a mile and they go 26 miles? <laughs> this is my friend. So I toured, I toured with Smokey, and uh, we were working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. And S Frank Sinatra was working next door at Harrah's. And I had worked Harrah's many times with Sammy. And I was a big Sinatra fan. You know, he was on the jukeboxes when I was a kid, shining yeah. shoes, you know. So <clears throat> I, after my show, and I didn't even change out of my stage clothes, I ran over to, to Harrah's. Hotel, and I was running into the showroom when the vice president of Harris Hotel, a man named Holmes Hendrickson, saw me. And he was with a guy named Mickey Rudin, who was a, a Frank Sinatra's lawyer, a very powerful guy. So I was running into the showroom because I didn't want to miss Frank's opening. And he saw me. He said, "Tommy, come here, Tommy." And I and I went over there reluctantly, and he said, "Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin." Well, I recognized the name. Yeah. You know? I said, oh, hi, Mr. Rudin. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen. I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he had heard that before. <laughs> and he winked at the vice president, but I caught the wink. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 <laughs> He said, I like this kid. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, I, a week later, I get a call. 
would you like to work with Frank Sinatra one week in Atlantic City at the Golden Nugget? Oh, my god! I gosh. said, yeah. And I figured I'll get my picture taken with him, hang it in every bar back in Chicago. And, and that'll be it. That'll be it. <laughs> you can close the lid on me, you know. And I worked uh, with him. And the second night, he and his wife, Barbara, took me out to dinner. And in the middle of dinner, I can remember like it was yesterday, he set his knife and his fork down. He said, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. <laughs> I said, yeah. And it turned into 14 years, oh. uh, 45 to 50 cities a year. And I'll tell you this, Harry, in the 14 years, I, was t I turned down more sitcoms than most comedians get offered in a lifetime. Because every time the networks came to me and wanted me to work with some ensemble group, uh, it would mean I would have to quit flying in Frank's private jet all over the world, staying at his home, hanging out with Frank till dawn. And I just, you know, where I grew up at, I don't have a degree from academia. I got a doctorate from the streets. I grew up on the streets. If you play the word association game with me when I was growing up, if you said the tall, short, the black, white, you said show business, I said Frank Sinatra. Absolutely. Dean Martin, Sammy Davis yeah. Jr. To me, they were the epitome of live entertainment. I never cared if ABC, NBC, CBS, I shouldn't say I never cared. Of course you care, but if ABC, CBS, NBC turned me down, it didn't mean anything That's to me that Frank Sinatra accepted me. Frank that Frank Sinatra. Sinatra said, come fly with me, come grace the same stage with me. Sammy Davis Jr. said, you can be on the same stage with me. Dean Martin said, come on my show. Oh. I didn't, you can close the lid on me. You yeah. know, I'm, 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 I did what I wanted to do in show business. And, and as Frank says, the best is yet to come. I'm still not done with all I'm doing, but those, I wouldn't have turned those years down for nothing, you know. No, it's absolutely remarkable and incredible. So you're on the Dean Martin roast too? Yeah, I did those, oh, yeah. Man, that's, I think, when I think show business too, I really think those guys, I was like, man, that was a different time. Those guys could do anything. They were so great and talented. Well, he, and he was too. Dean was a special guy, you know, and I played golf with him. I play golf with his son now. His son's name is Craig, and I'm friends with his family. In fact, I'm going to his daughter's birthday party coming up here in, uh, next month. His daughter, Gail. You oh, know. wow, yeah. Yeah, they're great. I mean, I... He was, Dean was a special guy, too. He was a, so he, funny. One of the funniest guys in children's. A lot of people think of Dean as a singer. He was a singer, but he was a great comedian. Yeah. And he really was. He knew how to deliver a punchline. His timing was impeccable. He wouldn't say anything all day long, but he'd say one line and everybody would fall on the floor, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> I mean, this might be a silly question since you're friends with him for so long, but do you have any memories that just stand right there in front of your head that just always pop up of you and Mr. Sinatra or? Oh, you know, I'm, I, I do a one-man show now called An Evening of Laughter and Memories of Sinatra. So I do, it's a 90-minute show. I do it in theaters, you know. I, I, the theater goes dark. On the screen, Dennis Farina narrates my life. It's a video of my life, a film of my life. Then I come out and I do stand-up comedy for about half an hour. Then I segue to a bar that's got a bottle of Jack Daniels on it, which was Frank's drink of choice, you know. And I, and I start telling... Um, so, you know, I, 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 I tell a joke at the bar and the lights go out and Frank comes on the screen singing, it's quarter to three, there's no one in the place except you and me. And I let that mood set in. When they get to the chorus, make it one for my baby, one more for the road, the light hits me and now the audience is in a bar with me and, and I've come home. And I tell him the first time I heard that voice, I was shining shoes in a bar on the south side of Chicago and he was on the jukebox. And then I take the audience from that little boy hearing Frank Sinatra on the jukebox shining shoes on the south side of Chicago, to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills. Oh, so I take gosh. them on that journey and, and uh, with a lot of laughs, but then tears. I have them in tears when I take them to the funeral. And then I close with a monologue and have them laughing again. 
And uh, then I toast them all, and I say, I wish for all of you what Frank Sinatra wished for you, the very last song that he ever sang on stage, is that the best is yet to come. And as they're leaving the theater, Frank singing, the best is yet to come. But see, all right, when I was, I always thought that a good comedian could make you laugh for an hour and a half, but a great comedian can make you laugh and cry in an hour and a half. And I only saw two comedians do that, Richard Pryor and Red Skelton. And I said, I want to do that one day. I want to try that. That's very dangerous. You know, when we get them laughing, we don't want to stop. Right. You get them on a roll. Yeah. You want to leave them laughing, right? But but I just want to challenge myself. And this one-man show is loaded with stories about Sinatra. Funny stories and poignant stories, you know. That's amazing. I got to come see that show. That sounds really incredible. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, <clears throat> I heard you mention that Mr. Sinatra was not only a great friend of yours, but he was also kind of like a father figure to you. Did he give you any advice or anything? Mo, all the time, yeah. yeah. You know, the, toward the, toward the um, when I first met him, we were like friends and buddies, and, and he was my employer, you know. And, and then after a while, we came like pals, we hung out. But toward the end, it, when he was getting older and, and he was getting closer to, to the end, and he would start giving me advice. When I was going through a divorce, he, he advised me. He said, I can't give you advice on, on uh, marriage. He said, but I can give you advice on divorce. <laughs> he was divorced three times. Yeah. He said, stay friends with her. Not for you, not for her, but for the kids. He said, it's very, very important. And he did that. I, I, I wasn't able to do that. And I regret that to this day. And, and that was the advice he gave me, though. And he stayed friends with, with his uh, ex and, and, uh, and, and, and stayed real close to the kids, of course. I'm real close to my kids, but I, I should have stayed closer to my ex. I, I, he was right. Um, but he also he taught me other things. I remember one time we were coming out of the Waldorf Astoria. <clears throat> we were going to do a gig, and, and we were rushing, and we went out the back door because he had a, a, a big apartment upstairs. And if you go out the front, he'd have got mobbed. So we're going out the back, and he's rushing to the limo, and the security guys were with him, and, and uh, a woman jumped out of the doorway, and she'd been hiding there, the doorman told me, for like five hours. Oh, my God. And she said, Mr. Sinatra, please, Mr. Sinatra, please, please. And, and, and the security tried to stop her, and Frank turned around, and he said, it's okay. He said, what is it? She said, Mr. Sinatra, my wife, uh, my, my husband is home sick. He said, and, and very ill, and if you could sign an autograph, it would mean the world to him. And Frank said, sure, and he's signing the autograph, and she said, oh, what beautiful cufflinks. And they were $2,000 cufflinks. I know where you got them at. He said, thank you, and he finished the autograph, and he took the cufflinks off, and he gave them to her and said, give these to your husband. She oh. said, no, no, I don't want them. Yeah. I don't want them. I just was admiring them. He said, no, give them to your husband. I'd like him to have them. We get in the limo, and I said, Frank, that was beautiful. That was wonderful, but why did you do that? He said, Tommy, if you possess something that you can't give away, you don't possess it. It possesses you. Wow. And, and it was a lesson that I never... Those are the kind of things he taught me. You know, it, it's, it's interesting because, because he said, you know, nothing you have is yours. The second you die, it all belongs to somebody else. He said, Aristotle Onassis, when he died, the second he died, all that money transferred. That wasn't his yacht. That wasn't his mansion. He was only using it. We're only using it, Tommy. It isn't ours to keep, you know. So share. And, and he was the most generous guy I've yeah. ever met in my life. You know, you know a, 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 on a funnier, smaller scale, two weeks after that happened, I'm having, right here where, where you're interviewing me, I'm having yeah. uh, Monday Night Football. The Chicago Bears are playing the Minnesota Vikings. And all my Italian buddies, yeah, mm -hmm. Eddie Marinero and Frankie Avalon and James Nairn oh, and, Joe wow. Pesci yeah. and, Jeff and Joe Pesci and Frankie Valley And they all came over here. And Frankie Avalon's making Philadelphia steak sandwiches and Dennis Farina's making the pasta. And, and we're going to watch, because Eddie Marinero played for the Vikings. Yeah. And, of course, I'm a Bear fan. So we're going to watch all this and, and have a good lot of laughs. And I said, oh, I, 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 this is like two weeks after the incident with Frank. 
I rush over to the liquor store around the corner from here to get beer and pop and all that stuff. And while I'm in there, I had on an NBC golf hat with an NBC golf shirt from playing in Lake Tahoe mm-hmm. in the tournament I play in. And as I rush in, the guy behind the counter from some different country, he said, hey, boss, like your hat, nice hat, boss. Can I have your hat, boss? I said, no, no. I said, it matches my shirt. And I, I you know, pay for the stuff. And I go outside and I went, what am I doing? I went back inside. He had other customers. I set the hat on the counter and I was leaving. He went, hey, boss, boss, I'm only joking. I don't want your hat, boss. I said, yeah. no, no, please keep it. Please keep it. The thought that I hadn't grown enough as a human being that a hat possessed me, <laughs> that I couldn't, <laughs> that, that, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Because yeah, he had said to me, it's okay if somebody says, I love your Mercedes Benz and you don't give it to them. Right. He said, but when you're in the bathroom shaving, you got to admit to that guy in the mirror that that car owns you because you can't give it away. And the thought that I thought that a hat owned me. <laughs> So, I mean, those are lessons. No, that's that he, right. he, yeah. he gave you life lessons. Oh, not yeah. Just, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was very, show very. Business. He was the most benevolent man I ever met in my life. Human being I ever met in my life. He did more for charity than you'll ever, ever know. And no one will know because he didn't want people to know. Some things they had to know, but when they didn't have to know, you know, he could pick up a paper. If he read in the paper, a little girl from Albuquerque, New Mexico has a brain tumor and her family lives in a boxcar. The next day, somebody was delivering a check saying that girl's all of her bills are paid and the guy delivering a check didn't know where it came from my gosh that's just the way he did things and you've done so much for charity and i i really admire you for all that and i think that's that's such a wonderful thing you've you've had like hundreds of charities over the past 45 years of your well career. we you know what i i had eight brothers and sisters yeah you know you know every Christmas. i really learn a lot from people like you and mr sinatra i mean it's you don't see that that often anymore in show business, I don't think, and it's well, it's not as intimate. You know, it used, to, it used to be you know that you would get to know not the entertainers because they, they you spent years watching their growth. Today, they someone does uh, America's Got Talent, and the next day they're they're filling arenas, you know, right. for a couple of weeks maybe or a couple of years, you know. But you know, I had eight brothers and sisters, and and we and as I told you, we lived in a shack. Every Thanksgiving and every Christmas, the local civic groups would bring baskets of fruit ham, turkey, things that my family never, my brothers and sisters would n- had never seen, fresh fruits and all that stuff. The local group, the Kiwanis, the Rotary, the Moose, the Elks, the Lions, JCs. Mm-hmm. And every Thanksgiving and every Christmas, my mother would turn them away. She'd say, no, my husband has a job. We don't deserve this. And two things stuck with me my whole life and my core values. My mother was right. He had a job and he should have been taking care of us. And B, it wasn't the government bringing us food. and stuff. It was people helping people. If you get out of Americans' ways, they're the most generous people in the world. They won't let a neighbor starve. You know, it's only when you mandate it that it makes a problem. But that stuck with me. And so every time that I wasn't working and somebody said, can you come and do something? I, of course I can. If my few jokes are going to make you laugh and raise some money for your charity, I'm glad to do it, you know. That's fantastic. That's really great. Well, you can't keep taking from the stream, Ari, but I promise you this. The more you put out, the more that comes back to you. You shouldn't do it for those reasons. But all that stuff about cast your bread and what you sow, you shall reap, that's not only biblical. That's life. That's a universal law. Yep. You know, what you sow, you shall reap. You know, you know, the more you put out, the more it comes back to you. The Beatles said, and in the end, the love you give is equal to the love you take. That, no no yeah. question about yeah. it. Okay. Uh, two more questions. Uh, real Take quick. your time. I'm so sorry. Uh, you've been in show business for 45 years. Do you think comedy has changed a lot over the years, or has it pretty much been yeah. the same at its core? Well, the change, what has really changed, of course, is, is the content, the material. I mean, oh, my God. You know, when I first started out, like I said, we all tried to get to The Tonight Show, so you'd watch it, The Tonight Show. Now, remember, we're in show business. That's two words, show and business. Yeah. Now, taking care of the show is one thing, but there's a business side of it. 
I want to get on the Tonight Show. Well, how do I get on? I'd watch the Tonight Show and I'd see what the comedians were doing. You know, there's no way you could use the language they use today and get on TV. But then along came cable years later, and 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 so you could just say whatever you want to say. And it would if you, the rule was if you didn't like it, change the station. You know. But when I first came in the show business, that wasn't the rule. That was the case. Yeah. Yeah, and you had to learn to work clean. Now, I'm not a prude. Like I told you, I got a d- d- degree from the a doctorate from the streets. Yep. I know every dirty joke there ever was and everyone. And by the way, I enjoy them. And I enjoyed <laughs> comics that work that way. I couldn't make a living doing that in my day. I had to learn to work clean. I wrote, as you said, five, six hours of clean material on The Tonight Show. So I developed a wealth of material that could be done in front of corporate America. See, if you're working in a club and your name's on a marquee, the people that come in are at the mercy of your material. Cause that's your, but if, you, if corporate America hires you, they can dictate policy. Right. They right. say, you know, I work for 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 all all uh, uh, Jewish audiences, all uh, all Catholic audiences, all Protestant audiences. Where sometimes they said, please don't use any offensive material, any even suggestive material. Now, you don't have to do the gig, but the corporate gigs, as any comedian will tell you, are the best gigs. Yeah. Because the money's good, and you don't have to worry about who's. You know, when I when I'm working in a club. I'm out there, I'm saying, uh, how many people tonight? Right. <laughs> Corporate gigs, yeah. they're all there. But they're there, you know, they're <laughs> there. And by the way, when you walk off, they hand you a check. Most of the time, they send you 50% up front. Oh, That's wow. the way to go. Yeah. It's really the way to go, yeah. That's so great. And last question, if you could give any advice to younger comedians today, what would it be? Well, I mean, there's so much. I, I could, we could do a whole hour on that. <laughs> but Next week, we'll come back. You know what? <clears throat> First of all, let me start with the brand new comedian, the comedian who's, who's thinking about becoming a comedian. Number one, start where you are, wherever you're at, Toledo, Ohio, start there. Start that, that, make your point that you're gonna be a stand-up to work as often as you can. Get up everywhere you can. If, there, if the comedy clubs won't let you on an open mic nights, go to your local church, your local whatever, and say, can I get up and do two minutes? Can I introduce an act, or whatever? Get up on stage as much as you can, you know, work as often as you can. Three, read the book, The Magic of Believing by Claude Bristol. You know, The Magic of Believing, if you don't believe in yourself, you can't expect audiences to believe in you, you know, so that, you know, for realize no one is ever going to help you. A lot of people think, well, I'm, I'm going to be appearing and some guy's going to come in and see me. You know, they're only going to help you when you're marketable. Right. You know, they, they can't help you when you can't make money for them. So no one is ever going to help you. you got to do it. You're all on your own. The days of developing acts in the studio signing you are almost gone. You've got to get out and do it on your own, you know, and, and, and you know, don't look for that one person to come to save your soul. You've got to create the your need you know, for your for your the opportunity and five don't ever quit bertram russell once said there are people in show business who become major stars simply because they didn't have sense enough to quit when they should have you know that's yeah. my, that's my story that's i slept in a car hitchhiking up and down sunset boulevard and I, and i wouldn't give up and until i realized my dream so I, that's what i'd give the kids just starting out those who are in the business that are already in it look <clears throat> We're driven by two energies in our body our whole lives, our ego and our Holy Spirit. Call it what you want, your center, your soul, call it whatever you want. But that's what the two energies are in our body. You weren't born ego, you were born pure spirit. You don't know if you're a boy or girl, uh, black or white, Jew or Gentile, you don't know what you were. Mm -hmm. You were just a spirit. You loved everything that loved you. You gravitated to anything that loved loved you and you loved that and they loved you back. So you were a spirit. About the time you're four or five years old, Walken adults, well-intentioned adults, sometimes misinformed, had been programming your computer. We little boys do this, we little girls do that, we Catholics do this, we Protestants, whatever it is. Pretty soon you're starting to develop an image of yourself based upon their input, their information. Then the ego is formed. 
now the, the battle in your life, the yin in your life, the rest of your life is your ego and your Holy Spirit. Your ego and your Holy Spirit. You young comedians, your ego demands that you walk down the street and get mobbed. Your ego can never get enough power, fame, fortune, money. It has an insatiable appetite, your ego. It won't rest until it destroys you because it'll take you to some place that'll destroy you. Your spirit, conversely, is like a song they had in the 70s. Uh, All I need is the air that I breathe and to love you. That was the, the chorus for a group called the Hollies. All you need is is the air that you breathe and the work and love your work or love your family. That's all you need. That's what your spirit needs. It doesn't need all the things the ego does. So your yin and your yang in your whole life in your showbiz is those two. If your spirit, you know, if you if you say I want to become a great comedian, Tom, or I want to become a great singer, because one day I want to have homes in Beverly Hills and I have all the new cars and I want to show those sons of beasts back home that they were wrong about me and I'm going to, that's your ego and that'll destroy you. Yeah. You say, I got to make it because you know, Ari and I started out together and Ari, Ari's already doing something and I got, and I'm funnier than him and I got, that's your ego yeah. and it'll destroy you. Your spirit, conversely, again, says, you know what? I love making people laugh. I love the sound of laughter. I love bringing people together and making them, they're better off for having had my service, you know, Service to humanity is the best work of life. Anybody, time someone's better off for having your service, if you're a masseuse, a, a truck driver, it doesn't matter. If they're better off for having had your service, you know, th- that's the, the service to humanity is the best work of life. So for those who I'm seeing, d- d- it's tough not to be ego-driven because the ego is a large part of getting us out on that stage, but keep your ego in check and do it for you. Listen to your spirit. Listen to who you really are. And and that's what the advice I'd give to somebody who's, been in the business for a while and tends on being in it the rest of their life, you know. Thank you so much. That was the golden rule, I think. Thank you so much, Mr. Dreesen. I really appreciated talking to you today. You can call me Tom. <laughs> thank you, Tom. Thank you so much. It was All right, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. My, very, very my much. pleasure.